You're listening to the Wesley Seminary Podcast. Your host today is Dr. Aaron Perry, Associate Professor of Pastoral Theology and Leadership. Who introduced you to Christian faith? Who introduced you to the Bible? Whose reading of Scripture started to bring it alive for you? At what point did you realize that maybe you had a disagreement? Or maybe the faith that they had introduced you to was a little bit deeper or wider or had some kind of different take than what they had introduced you to? Where did you find that you had to maybe part ways, maybe in big, maybe in small ways from somebody who had introduced you to Christian faith? Now, I ask these questions as a way to introduce today's podcast because that forms so much of what we're trying to do in this episode. Today's guests are Dr. Chris Kayser and Dr. Matthew Petrusik. Dr. Kayser is professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University. He's a Fulbright scholar and he did postdoctoral work as a federal chancellor fellow at the University of Cologne and is William E. Simon visiting fellow in the James Madison program at Princeton University. And Dr. Petrusik is associate professor of theological ethics also at Loyola Marymount University. And he currently serves along with Dr. Kayser as a fellow of the Word on Fire Institute. Now, what these gentlemen have done together is a critical assessment of Jordan Peterson's work. The book is Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. It's published by the Word on Fire Institute. And in this book, they analyze both Peterson's use of scripture and some of his philosophical and psychological underpinnings, where they have a critical read. How can theology or Christian tradition engage Peterson's own read and engage Peterson's own work? In today's episode, you'll hear some comments on this. You'll hear some ways that Peterson might be strengthened and how Peterson might be of value and of use in Christian ministry or in the Christian faith to help us read scripture well, or perhaps able to communicate scripture to a world as it listens in. Now, you might not know about Jordan Peterson, and you might not be familiar with his work, but even if you tune in today's episode, you'll hear how people are doing just some of the work of critically engaging somebody who has introduced many people to Christian faith and who has introduced many people to the Bible. Now, whether or not Peterson is a Christian or where he is on his own spiritual journey, it's pretty tough to say, and it's tough to come to a definitive answer. But in today's conversation, you're gonna hear two critical scholars engage his work in a faithful and fair way that I think leads us into how we might use scripture and how we might do some of this critical engagement, not just with Peterson, but with others that we encounter along the way as well. Stay tuned for a word from our sponsor and then enjoy the podcast. We are Wesley, and you belong here. I'm Gloria Zikiwe, and I am Wesley. My name is Chris, and guess what? I am Wesley. I'm Ryan Wagers, and I am Wesley. My name is Julius White, and I am Wesley. My name is Jen Peterson, and I am Wesley. We recognize this beautiful diversity that the Lord has called together that is Wesley. My name is Corey Merritt, and I am Wesley. I am Wayne Brown, and I am Wesley. I am Colleen Durr and I belong here. You belong here too, because we are Wesley. Welcome to the Wesley Seminary Podcast, Chris. Welcome, Matt. Glad that you both have joined us. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, subtitled The Search for a Meaningful Life. It's published by the Word on Fire Institute. And of course, engaging with Jordan Peterson, which we've done a couple of times on the Wesley Seminary podcast before. But I've been looking forward to this conversation because I think that this book comes at it both with some breadth. You've, you've looked at 
the YouTube videos that Dr. Peterson has produced. You've done a deep analysis of his work, and you've done it in two different ways. So you've got some theological reflections, and you've got biblical reflections and philosophical reflections all in the mix. So I'm really grateful that you're here. And as we go through this conversation, I'll direct questions to Chris and then to Matt, but please feel free to jump in and we'll just see how this conversation goes. First to Chris, I'd love for you to talk to us about how Jordan Peterson approaches scripture, right? This is deeply embedded in his YouTube lectures, but in your research, how does he approach scripture? So his YouTube lectures on uh, Genesis have been incredibly uh, popular. And I think part of the reason they're so popular is that he approaches scripture in a way that is trying to see how scripture has lessons for us today. So rather than simply think of the Bible as the unlearned reflections of uh, nomadic people that really have nothing to say to 21st century human beings, what Peterson does is really look for those stories as archetypes that really have something to teach uh, us today. And so, for instance, if he looks at the story of Cain and Abel, he's going to see in that story an exemplification of a universal human phenomena, and that would be the phenomena of envy and jealousy towards someone else who is succeeding more than you are. And when you read the biblical stories in this sort of way, they really gain a universal significance. And part of the reason I became fascinated with Peterson is that the significance of these biblical stories in Peterson's interpretation is really been quite influential for people who describe themselves as atheists or as agnostic or as having no religion, no faith background at all. And so many, many of these people have said that Peterson's interpretations have really opened up the uh, Bible in a new way, in a very fresh way. And so I thought that that's a, a really significant and fascinating development. And so in the book, what I try to do is link up what Peterson says about the Bible with historic Christian interpretations of the Bible given by figures such as Augustine, uh, Origen, Thomas Aquinas. And what I found was a really fascinating overlap where what Peterson does really is present in a new and fresh way some of the insights of these classic Christian thinkers. And in particular, what I think Peterson's doing is presenting what they would call the moral sense of scripture. So looking at scripture, not so much for historical details about past events, but rather as a guide for how to live well today. And so I think when Peterson's looking at scripture, that's sort of the lens, you might say, that he's examining the biblical text from. And again, it seems like it's been very fruitful for many, many people today to think about the Bible in this new way. There's certainly a, a, a willingness that he has to not ignore difficult questions of scripture, but really how do I take scripture at its best? Maybe you'd say, how, how do I analyze a text that has been so formative and is so ancient and kind of give it credit for having staying power, let's call it like that, or, or having a lasting power and, and having been so influential in so many lives? Can I give it a, a fresh read with that in mind? And like you said there, it has been the lectures that he was giving were really well attended, which is kind of a, an odd phenomenon in itself. I'd love to, to follow that up with asking you about how does this make a difference or, or how do you see this possibly making a difference with your students? How do you see this kind of moral read of scripture as being beneficial to your students or to young people who might not otherwise be interested in the Bible, who are just getting started in reading the Bible? Yeah, so I think sometimes people can be stuck when they start to be interested in the Bible and they can be stuck with the question of the authority of scripture. So in other words, they, they might be stuck with the question, well, 
is this really God's word? Is it inerrant? Is it perfect in every respect? Or is it a merely human story of ancient origin? And I think part of what Peterson does is not get wrapped up and, would you say, dominated by those sorts of concerns. And there's other people who read scripture this way too. I think of Eleanor Stump. So she's a great philosopher from the University of St. Louis. And she has very, very interesting interpretations of scripture. And, and what she does is she says, look, you may believe that the Bible is God's word and perfect and infallible. You may not believe that. But whatever your view of scripture, let's try to first understand what it's really saying. What is this story? What does this story have to teach us today? Because even if you were to presuppose that scripture is not divinely inspired, it could nevertheless be a source of tremendous wisdom. I mean, I personally don't think that Shakespeare's Hamlet is, you know, God's word. But I think you'd be crazy to say that you can't learn something very profound from what Shakespeare has to teach us. And the Bible, whatever your view of an inspiration, is undoubtedly a collection of some of the oldest stories ever told. And I think basically the older a story is, the more likely that that story has perennial meaning and interest for people. Because if a story is you know, not perennially interesting, if it doesn't really touch on universal themes of humanity, well, then people just wouldn't retell the story. So the older the story is, the more likely it is it's going to have something of perennial interest. And I think that's true for the Bible to a, a very great degree. And then I think once you read the Bible and appreciate the importance of these stories, I think that can open someone up to the idea, well, maybe there's more to this than merely human inspiration. And so, you know, Peterson himself, who knows exactly where he is going or what he currently believes on those matters, but I do think he's provided a real service by making the Bible's power relevant again for people today. I think um, Peterson's great success has um, re really revealed some, some important features, both about Christianity and, and its contemporary expressions, but also about the Bible itself. So on the first point, I think that it's, it's fair to say in a very generic sense, and of course, there's many exceptions to this, but that Christians have not been doing a very good job of teaching the Bible internally within its own communities, but especially externally, because so many students do approach the Bible as if it were, I mean, their, their base presupposition is that it is just a collection of old stories, like any other collection of old stories, with the additional presupposition that it's, it's just a bunch of, of myths. How did that happen? I mean that it, it's hard to it's hard to to ascribe blame perhaps, but something has gone wrong with Christianity's uh, self presentation. I'd say within the past 30, 40 years, um, precisely because these stories are so rich and ready to give wisdom and ready to give direction and ready to give uh, substance and meaning to life. So there's something going on there. I also think that it's a, it's equally important to highlight that when you have someone like Jordan Peterson, who of course is is he's very smart, he's he's a very intelligent man, and, and he's quite gifted in his capacity to extract meaning. But at the same time, I think that is this just shows again that the Bible truly is, and to the extent it's possible to say this in a temporal context, an eternal book, because anybody who who sits down and takes it seriously and says, I'm going to read this to see what I can learn. I'm going to read this to see what it can teach me, uh, can end up in relatively short order, making many of the same kinds of insights of the great saints of the church. Now, of course, there's some areas of, of Peterson's biblical interpretation that I think are, are not 
are not supported by a, a careful reading of the Bible. But in some areas, as Chris was pointing out, he's echoing without have ever having read the great biblical interpreters of the past 2000 years. He's never read them as far as we know. He'll, he'll end up with the same kind of interpretations and the same kind of, uh, of wisdom. So that also says something about the Bible itself, both as a reminder to us as Christians, but also to uh, secular audiences as well. It's a good book. One of the comments that I would, I would make with this recently had in my class, Dr. Walter Kim, who's the head of the National Association of Evangelicals, and he was laying out for us some of the, the statistical data that, that he's been going over, which is the interest that people, a broad range of people have in North American culture to answers about significant questions, and they're open to those answers being formed by the Bible. And so one of the things that I, I'm consistently encouraging and encouraged by with my students is their deep interest in scripture, their deep interest in handling it well and preaching it faithfully and preaching it in a way that's engaging to their, their community, but then also being willing to carry some of those conversations into social media. And that's not always an easy thing. And it's, it's easy to do it foolishly and poorly. The interest is there. I think I would describe it as a hunger, right? There's a hunger for good answers. And there's an increasing, at least in some circles, interest in how the Bible might be used to give some of those answers. And certainly Peterson has been scratching that itch. He's been using it to try to answer some of those questions. Matt, this question to you, one of Peterson's common themes is he talks about alleviating unnecessary suffering. Out of this, he's worked really hard to teach people and to work with people to better their own lives, right? This, this kind of ordering in their lives and, and these axiomatic phrases he's able to come up with that, if followed, will help lead people out of suffering and then be benefit to, to other people. In this way, there certainly is a way that truth is, is personal. But one of the things that Peterson is careful to do is not to say that truth is merely personal or it's you know hyper-personal, right? It's my truth and I can have my truth, you can have your truth, right? Peterson is very, very critical of that, of that approach. I'd like to hear from you about Jordan Peterson's approach to meaning and our pursuit of truth that is meaningful, truth that forms our lives, but how does he also help to avoid it from becoming that kind of privatization of truth? How does he kind of walk that narrow ridge? Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of really interesting um, strands within that question, both in, in the interpretation of Peterson and, and the importance that he has culturally. The first thing to highlight is just how remarkable it is that somebody who wrote a rule book has the kind of cross-cultural success that, that he has experienced. I mean, if the book is called 12 Rules for Life, and then we get 12 more rules. The base basic disposition that uh, Western secular culture, I just say, just secular culture, it's not just in the West anymore, has towards rules is, is who are you to impose any kinds of rules on me? Rules at best are consensual principles that we agree on so we can both get what we want in a way that minimizes friction. Like that's the best we could possibly say about a rule. It's certainly not something that's objective and certainly not something that could be heteronymous or imposed on me from the outside. And Peterson explodes that category and he's loved for it. So I think as you were saying, Aaron, there, there is a kind of hunger for a call to something beyond our own fancies and beyond our own desires uh, that, that he's, he's touched a nerve and, and in, in doing so reopened the possibility of secularism taking seriously the idea of there being an objective moral order. Now, how does he do it? It's immensely complex to, to untie the different layers within his, his own argument. Uh, I think part of what he's he's up to is therapeutic in nature. 
In fact, there was a recent uh, review of our book, and, uh, and that was one uh, that was one point of critique. It said, you, "I don't think you, both of you realize just how therapeutic Peterson is trying to be. He meaning he's acting as a therapist, which he is. He is a he's a, a he works clinically as well. And so, for that reason, I think that that helps explain why his thought is not as systematic as perhaps uh, we would like it to be in terms of being able to look at at the the foundational principles and then the, the the derivative principles and things like that." So when he talks about meaning, when he talks about um, truth, a lot depends upon the specific rule that he's talking about in relationship to meaning and truth. So one of the one of the, the things that I try to do in, in, in my section of the book was to try and lay that all out on a table and, and try and reorganize it in such a way so that it would it could be somewhat systematic. And it, it appears that what Peterson is doing, is he has frequently appears to nature, but nature has two different kinds of meaning. And they're related, but they're, they're they're different categories. One is little n nature, which is nature from a, a biological, environmental perspective, especially from using uh, his understanding of, of evolutionary biology. And insofar as nature, little n nature exists, he thinks it's a fundamental feature of reality that we all have little n natures, and those little n natures create a substructure to reality that we can deny, but we're delusional to do so. A lot of his discussion on the differences between, for example, uh, women and men, the biological differences that keep showing up no matter what kind of sociological frameworks we try to impose on them, his discussion of lobsters, it's all sort of meditations on the conclusions of the existence of this little N nature. But there's also a big N nature, which I think he, he oftentimes referred to as being and he even capitalizes it, being. The difficulty with his conception of being, though, is it seems to be both the problem and the solution to the, the question of meaning. So being is alternatively suffering, and yet he says that we should raise up being on our shoulders and to carry being forward, which means that being is not only suffering, being is also seeking to overcome suffering, and he also associates it with order and with chaos and with evil and with goodness. Uh, so this is one area of Peterson's thought, which is fascinating, but I do think it's important to give it a good philosophical breakdown and, and, and also theological analysis to say, this is metaphysics really makes sense. And I think in the end, it needs a generic Christian metaphysics to, to fix the problems as it were. Yeah, there's certainly a an existentialist approach that he deeply wants to wrestle just with life itself and the, the nature of lived experience. And you would expect that from a clinical psychologist. There's a pragmatism to his work as well, that it has been tested out and it's combined with theoretical and deep, as he called it, medi meditations and reflections on biological life, right? On the, just the biological structures, which we inherit. And out of that, there comes a desire to help other biological beings, like human beings to do well and thrive. And one of the things that I think I haven't teased this out and maybe it'll come out in your answer, but as, as a follow-up, a good chunk of Peterson's work often calls for people to stand up or as you've called it, like put this on your shoulders. I can't in this podcast give the exact quote, but to carry your cross, right? To, to put that on your shoulder and to, to take your own existence seriously and your own role in the world seriously. He'll call it a, a posture of readiness. And, and sometimes that's, he'll use even like conflict and battle imagery as well this can sometimes get him into trouble, right? Especially with commentators or people that have grabbing sound bites from him. I recently had a friend say it like this. He said, Peterson, I think I like, but some of his disciples, I don't. <laughs> right? How can we read or learn from Peterson in a way that ultimately 
isn't really about his disciples or even him, but does seek to read him with a good Christian metaphysics in mind. How can we read Peterson in a way that's about following Christ and knowing God? Yeah, I, I think that the the one one immediate takeaway that then needs to be very carefully clarified is that that Peterson is inspiring people to not only to take seriously, but maybe even to embrace and to instantiate their own lives, the, the axiom that your life is not ultimately about you. And he is he has separated the, the idea of happiness from the fulfillment of desire, which again, this is all staples in the Christian tradition. As Chris has pointed out many times, he, in many ways, Peterson is reinventing the wheel, but it sounds so revolutionary to uh, contemporary uh, secular audiences. In that specific respect, I think he's, he's um, a very powerful, positive force for the culture, just to, as a, a basic call to reorient your life to something other than your tiny, uh, lustful plans that you have for yourself. So raise up and, 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 and actually take upon meaning in your life. The question then, of course, is, well, we need some content to that, right? We need some content to what meaning is. And I think in his own thought, there's some weaknesses there because there's a danger of it ultimately coming down to a kind of utility. So like be courageous and uh, take upon suffering, confront it directly. Why? Because the alternative is worse. You will collapse and you will ultimately fall into despair if you don't, which I think is true, but it's ultimately just pragmatic. So then the question for Peterson and the question this book tries to take up is, well, what's ultimately true? We need content to that, not just a kind of pragmatic placeholder. And so I think that's that's where, again, the Christian tradition is not only supplementary, it's absolutely necessary in order to fill in those blanks in his thought. Let me shift that question back to you, Chris, then, because I think one of the critiques that Christians, especially like careful, critically, critical thinking Christians could have of Peterson is that there is a kind of utilitarian use of scripture as well. There's a historically embedded read of of that text that is just going to kind of let him put it under his own microscope. I tend to read him as though there's something more than just a reader response, right? There's more than just him analyzing the biblical text. I, I tend to see him as being open to revelation or something like it in his read of the text. But how might you kind of take that question and say, here's what we would need to do to read scripture well, even if Peterson is going to be a helper? How do we approach scripture in a way that takes Peterson seriously, but then also is able to bring appropriate correctives or is able to bring appropriate critiques so that we read scripture well? Yeah, so one of his insights about scripture is that it's a text that has uh, many, many rich variety of meanings and interpretations that can be given to it. And I think that's right. But I think in the Christian tradition, we can, we can strengthen that. So Thomas Aquinas held that there were actually an infinity of possible meanings for scripture because God is the ultimate author of scripture and God is infinite and the human mind can never fully comprehend God. And so the human mind could never fully comprehend scripture. And what this means in part is that God can intend multiple true meanings of scripture. So say the three of us could read one particular passage from the gospels and come away with true interpretations of scripture. One that applies to my life, one that applies to Aaron's life, one that applies to Matt's life, and they could all be true. I think where there's a trouble is if it turns into a kind of relativism where you say, well, every reading of scripture is equally valid, every reading of scripture is equally true. And I think that's not the case. And I think that uh, Augustine can save us from that sort of error. Augustine in De Doctrina Christiana, he puts forward the idea that even though there are multiple true senses of scripture, there are also 
false readings of scripture. And how do you determine that? Well, Augustine will say any reading of scripture that goes against and undermines love of God and love of neighbor is a bad false reading of scripture. And so I think one way to kind of enhance and augment Peterson's reading of scripture is to read it in the rubric of, well, what really enhances love of God and love of neighbor? And then once you're talking about love of God and love of neighbor, it seems to me you need to ask, well, what exactly is that? And you could have a faulty understanding of what love of God and love of neighbor really involve. But I think in the Christian tradition, there's really a pretty extensive tradition of thought about, well, what exactly are the demands of love? And this really arises from Jesus, that if we're going to love God and love our neighbor, that's going to involve, necessarily involve, obeying the commandments. So I'm a liar if I say, well, I love you, and then I'm trying to kill you and steal your stuff and bear false witness against you. Well, there's an inherent contradiction in that. Just like there's an inherent contradiction if I say I love God, and I don't really love the image of God I find in other people. So I think when we put scripture in that understanding of what love is, we can have both a very rich and multidimensional interpretation of scripture in which there are many true interpretations, but also not fall into a kind of relativism or a kind of utilitarianism where there's really no groundwork or framework for evaluating interpretations of scripture as better or worse or good or bad. The worry is that Peterson's interpretation could just kind of go off into the sort of relativism or the sort of pragmatic utilitarianism. So I, I, I would want to avoid that. And I think the way to avoid that is to read scripture in terms of this broader Christian tradition of readings of scripture that enhance love of God and love of neighbor or don't. I think that's the way to make sure we don't go off the rails. Yeah, you can start to see how you can apply that in a relatively simple way. So I grew up in a, in a pietist tradition, evangelical tradition, and uh, we often emphasize personal reading of scripture, which of course is good, but you can see how reading that with a friend or two friends is automatically going to open it up to more possible true readings, right? So that we can discuss it and dialogue that. And if you have a really good relationship, then you can have somebody who would challenge it and say like, I don't think that that's there, right? Or I think that might have bad consequences. I think that might get teased out incorrectly. Now, the danger of reading in community is that we can also get a kind of group think, which absolutely does become a kind of relativism where we never challenge a different read and we never, we only affirm a kind of a personalized reading. And, and so we can't devolve into that. But whenever we recognize that there, there might be multiple faithful readings that will guide us towards love of God and love of neighbor, and if we have that kind of accountable relationship to hold one another to a good, careful read of the text, then we can see why reading in community, and not just in the immediate community, but also historically, right? Reading back into ancient commentators, reading back into other Christians who have read this before us can be so, so valuable. Final question. Let me, let me bring this first to you, Chris, and then to, and then to Matt. So one of the things that Peterson is doing, and it was mentioned earlier on, is his is his use of the the archetypes, right? These these grand narratives, these these potent stories that that seem to find their themes all the way through all kinds of other stories. And really, it seems that in almost every other meeting I'm in, someone brings up this category, right? Somebody brings up the category of story. It might come across that somebody says we need to tell our story better, or somebody might say, well, that's not my story to tell, or there might be some kind of caution that says, be careful the the nature of a single story. Now I've just done some like cultural awareness stuff and I've done some marketing reflection, right? Story is just making its way into all these different kinds of meetings that, that I'm really, I enjoy sitting in, but I also kind of have to put my philosophical hat on and say like, well, how is it being used here? 
in ways that are similar, ways that are dissimilar, and how can I use it wisely and faithfully? First to you, Chris, then to Matt. How can Christians engage the category of story faithfully and practically, but without merely seeing it for its practical value? Yeah, so one way to think about this is in terms of uh, what St. Ignatius Loyola would call the examine. And the idea of the examine is you think about your life, like say yesterday, and you think about the stories that come from your life. I mean, when we think about say the previous day, we naturally, as it were, tell ourselves a story about what happened. You know, I had this interaction, I had this experience. And for Christians, what we do is we relate our personal stories, you might say, to the broader story, the grand story, the ultimate story. And the ultimate story is what? Well, it's a story of, I'd say, ultimately, of creation, of fall, of redemption, and ongoing sanctification. I mean, that's the universal story, as it were. And so all of our individual experiences and life stories, I think, are kind of fractals that are kind of many representations of these larger stories. And for Christians, of course, the most important story, the greatest story ever told is the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And so I think part of being Christian is fitting your own life story and seeing your own life story as in its own way, in its own particularity, in its own individuality, in some sense, a representation, a reflection of this Christian story, because we're supposed to, in our own lives, live out the life of Christ. And so that means in my own life, I'm going to have a kind of Good Friday. I'm going to have suffering. I'm going to have times where people don't see eye to eye with me and treat me unfairly. But hopefully in my story, I'll also have the moment of resurrection, uh, small resurrections, but then at the end of life, hopefully the, the grand resurrection. And so I think this idea of story is really important. Now, I think we can get lost in story. In other words, if all it is is a story, we can have trouble. And that's why I think this sort of Franciscan emphasis on story needs to be supplemented with a Dominican emphasis on, you might say, wisdom and philosophy and logic and reasoning and science. And actually, that's sort of, for me, part of the power of Peterson's thought is that it's not just story, but it's not just science. And he brings these together. And that's really part of the wisdom, I think, of the Christian tradition. We have the stories. We have the gospel stories. We have so many stories of great saints over the ages that are incredibly inspiring. But we also have, you might say, the wisdom of philosophy, the wisdom of a scientific understanding of theology. But we don't want to have just one or just the other. I think that we're going to move forward in the best way if we combine both the Franciscan emphasis on story and narrative with the more Dominican emphasis on reason and wisdom and philosophy. I think what we really need is kind of both, not only for the church, but in our own lives. I recently heard the phrase, somebody was talking about philosophy and they were saying, well, who do you like better, Plato or Aristotle? And the person said, that's like asking me to choose between my left eye and my right eye. <laughs> like I need them both. And I think that, that you're, you're emphasizing, like you're, you're putting together those categories of, the, of story, but also wisdom is really important that both of those give us perspective. And, and if we only have one, then we miss the depth of what they each can bring and the gift that, they, that both approaches to knowledge are that God has certainly wired us to approach knowledge in both those ways. And we can do so faithfully in both those ways. To you, Chris, how can we engage this, this category of story in a way that's meaningful and helpful and faithful, but also of practical value as well? Well, I think, is it all right if we turn oh, it over sorry, to Matt? Oh, so, sorry, to Matt. Yeah, sorry, to Matt. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll be happy to say my answer again if you want, but I, it might be, it <laughs> it might so be less good. exciting just, the second time around. I don't know. Yeah, we just want to absorb it. 
<laughs> uh, well, I, I, I agree with, with everything that, that both of you have said. Um, I, I would just add that um, the story, story is also, I don't want to say under attack, but uh, it, it's a highly suspicious category nowadays, especially politically. And I think it points to the reason sort of the, the shadow side of a story is that if you get caught up in a narrative that ultimately at its root is not connected to truth, uh, well, then it can take a lot of unraveling to fix that because because we are creatures who do live in stories that that gives us the glue, as it were, to bind our otherwise completely individually discrete experiences together, both individually and socially. We need stories. Um, if we start telling the wrong story, then things can go badly very quickly. And, um, you know, one of the one of the ways that's being expressed politically right now is the grand narrative. Right. So I think the most important question to ask ultimately about a story is not uh is it is it beneficial not does it, it, it even is it necessary but is it true is this a true story and that includes pragmatic truth it includes uh experiential truth but it also ultimately must include a uh, literal truth it must include objective truth because if it doesn't have that grounding then all those other things are ultimately just variations of subjectivism or cultural relativism in which case who cares and on the one hand, Peterson is pointing us in the direction of the objective, which is great, but then he's leaving that the question of true truth, of objective truth beyond pragmatic truth, ambiguous at best. And I think that that ultimately calls into question um, all the other massive gains he's made in terms of moving people towards this, towards a, a more stable understanding of, of, of their own lives. Joining us today have been Dr. Chris Kayser and Dr. Matthew Petrusik. They are the authors of Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. It's published by the Word on Fire Institute. Gentlemen, thank you so much for taking this time to share with us, to uh, condense some of your work, and then to continue this introduction into Jordan Peterson and to critically assess how he might be used uh, in some faithful context as our listeners are in. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Thanks, Connor, for your production work. Appreciate you being such a great teammate. Listeners, you make conversations like this possible, so thanks for tuning in. The Wesley Seminary podcast exists to introduce topics and resources for fruitful ministry. I trust we've done just that today. If you agree, please like and subscribe. Share us around on your various social media platforms to let other people know about the Wesley Seminary podcast. Thanks so much again, Chris. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you. Trust you all. Have a great day. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter under the name Wesley Seminary.